It's a, a pretty grisly kind of uh, chapter, this one. Um, it, it really brings to a conclusion, uh, well, it, in more ways than one, it really does bring to a conclusion the life of the man Haman. Uh, if you haven't been able to uh, get along to hear where we're up to uh, through this story of Esther, a very, very brief recap. Esther is a Jew. She's ended up as the queen of Persia the Medo-Persian Empire under King Xerxes, he's ended up with Esther in a convoluted way, which makes it clear that God is the one who is behind all of these activities. She ends up as queen, and almost as a parallel activity, the king's right-hand man, a man named Haman, uh, stands in absolute clear opposition to the people of God. He hates them so much... In fact, he stands, if you like, as an icon, as a picture of everything that is standing against the living God. It's almost as though he's our, he's our portrayal of what it is to stand against God. Uh, Haman has been standing against God and is determined to kill all of the Jews uh, throughout the empire. Now, we're not talking about just uh, a few people here and there. We're talking about a colossal number of people across the whole of the empire whose lives are absolutely, if you like, the death sentence has been signed for a particular day, a number of months into the future. Again, what we see is God working behind the scenes in an incredible way that gives Queen Esther remarkably the opportunity to speak to the king. Um, if you go home and read it, if you've not been following it, go home and read it. What you'll see is that the queen and king's relationship is not what you would ever describe as normal. In fact, he, she has to go into the king in fear of her life. Uh, it ends up that the king accepts. He grants her any wish up to half the kingdom. And the thing that she asks for is a banquet with the king and Haman. So that's what happens. Haman brags about it. And Haman, the very next day, is brought down a massive uh, peg. Uh, because the, he goes in expecting to have Mordecai killed at the king's edict. He's built this pole huge pole outside his home uh, to him the Medo-Persian way of killing executing people was to impale people uh, he was going to have Mordecai impaled on this great pole outside of his house very important that actually it's almost a statement of authority isn't it I will have you killed outside of my house I, in other words I'm making this statement that this power and authority is mine over you and that's precisely what uh, Haman thinks he has over Mordecai. The reality is that it ends up completely reversed and he ends up leading Mordecai through the streets proclaiming Mordecai's glory. Again, too long to go into. As he goes home, absolutely filled with remorse and horror about what's gone on through that day, his wife says to him, you do not stand a chance. You have absolutely had it. Because you are not standing simply against Mordecai, you are standing against the God of Mordecai. In essence, that's what she says. As that is happening, as those sentences are coming out of the lips of Mordecai's wife and uh, Mordecai's advisors, he's whisked off uh, into the presence of the king for the next banquet. In fact, that's where we take uh, the story up. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet 
that's the first verse of chapter one, uh, chapter seven. It's like it, he's on this roller coaster. Nothing can stop. If we could just get that uh, up on the screen, we can see how that uh, opens up. The king and, the, and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet because, again, she was granted the opportunity. She said, I would love to have another banquet with you and Haman. We have an absolute, I find it fascinating, we have a fascination um, with the ideas of what we wish to do before we die. It's a strange thing, um, the idea of death, isn't it? It's it's an incredibly personal, horrific thing which can break into our experiences without us having any expectation. It can just suddenly break in. Uh, And it's almost as though, it's almost one of those things that we we don't want to talk about. Uh, We kind of hide it away, and yet at the same time, we we are interested in it. Uh, If you've ever seen, I think it's a fantastic film in lots of ways, and really sadly depressing in other ways, tragic in other ways, a brilliant film called The Bucket List. Uh, if you've seen it, Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson, uh, who are diagnosed as ill, and they they have the opportunity to um, create this bucket list, the things that they want to do uh, before they die. Uh, And they're able to do it. But at the same time, there's a documentary that was produced last year, 50 Things to Do Before I Die. That's the name of the documentary. It followed the life of two young men in America, one who was diagnosed as terminally ill, uh, and it followed them as they went through all of the things that they wanted to do. Similar kind of idea to the bucket list film, and yet at the same time, it was somber in that it was truly serious. It's been announced by Warner Brothers that they're um, producing uh, a movie. They haven't set a date yet, Uh, 30-somethings, I think it's called. It's about 30-somethings who've been diagnosed as, as ill again and the things that they want to do before they die. Isn't it fascinating? Repeatedly, the same kind of idea. The things that we don't like to talk about are also the things that we dip into in terms of our, our kind of social experiences of reading or movies or whatever it might be. It's as though that environment, if you like, that environment gives us a safe way to think about the things that we don't actually want to think about. Uh, We'll watch it on screen, we'll read a book like Before I Die, written by Jenny Downham, which again is following the same kind of story. Isn't it interesting? You know, one of the things that the Bible, uh, I find, is really helpful, uh, and yet at the same time, to some extent, disconcerting is that it doesn't shy away from the real issues of life. And in a sense, this chapter doesn't shy away from the real issues of life. What do all of those kind of media presentations suggest to us in this theme? I think what they all repeatedly suggest to us is this, and that's why I found the Morgan Freeman film quite troubling. The main thrust, in fact, the great thrust in that is to use all of our strength, all of our ability, 
all of our resources to make something of this life. That's, if you like, the driving force behind all of those stories, all of those true uh, stories as well. It's as though we, we desperately want to make something of the life that we've lived. And when we are faced with that sort of, the thing that we don't talk about hitting our our radar clearly that I am faced with that reality, then we decide, I want to put all of my effort into making my life worthwhile. Now, in one sense, I think there's something incredibly wholesome about that. Why? How can you say that as a Christian? I think it's great because of this. God has made us to be in this world that he has created and to enjoy this world that he has created. In one sense, there's a great deal of worth in experiencing and enjoying in appropriate ways the world that God has made for us. That's absolutely right. So, you know what? If you have this absolute burning ambition that the one thing that you want to do uh, is to climb Kilimanjaro to experience that. If your motives are right, I'll just, just great, just go and do it. Fantastic. And yet at the same time, what, what we tend to do is we make those good things, those things that are great to experience and great to do, we make them absolute. We make them the ultimate. We say, life is actually all about those experiences, as opposed to life is all about enjoying those experiences as a way of understanding the God who has created the world and has created us. Now, that is wildly different, isn't it? Massively different. So, we can, we can approach all of those things in one way and say, I'm really enjoying this and it's great and it's fantastic. Or we can approach it and say, this is great and it just reminds me how amazing and how wonderful God is. Now, I I want to encourage you to really start to think and to question and to ponder, how do I approach the, the, the desires and the hopes and the ambitions in life? Am I approaching them? And I think it's absolutely valid to approach appropriate goals in the sense of seeing that I can uh, enter into these activities because God has given me the ability, God has given me the enjoyment, God has created this world, or do I make it so that this is all about me? It's about me at the center. It's about what I've achieved. It's about what I have done. I think that those kind of questions are massively relevant to this chapter because after all, Haman although he doesn't realize it, he is right at that point where he should be asking these questions. He doesn't realize it when he's whisked off to the king's palace for the next banquet. But the reality is that he has hours left to live. We know because we can see the whole of the story. We're able to read this chapter we're able to see that what happens as he arrives at the palace is that he literally has hours left and his life is ended. Now, one of the things that we've already said is that Haman is probably one of those people who we would look on and say, your resource is limitless to do any of the things that you want to do. 
You can do anything. One of the f- interesting things about the uh, Bucket List film is that one of them portrays this incredibly uh, successful hospital executive played by Jack Nicholson who hasn't got any friends, but he has got absolute seeming boundless resource to do whatever he wants to do. Morgan Freeman is a guy who wanted to be a professor uh, historian, uh, a professor of history. Uh, That was his thing. Um, And and he wasn't able to do it because he had family commitments and all the rest of it. Uh, And they came together, kind of built this strange friendship and relationship. And all of the resources of one became available to both of them to do all of the things that they wanted to do. Imagine that. Imagine endless resource. Haman would have been just that guy. He was number two in the kingdom. He had more resource than you could possibly imagine. He had all of the opportunity to do whatever he wanted to do. There's a report that was in the uh, online just this past week. Interesting to see all of the things that people actually regret at the end of life. The things that they don't regret are all of those things wrapped up with kind of the opportunities that resource gives. You know, the opportunity to be able to travel here or travel there or the opportunity to be able to buy this or buy that or do this or do that. They're not the things that they regret. (laughs) actually regret things like, I wish I hadn't spent so much time at work. Uh, I wish I'd put more into those relationships that are really precious to me. Here's a guy right in front of us in this chapter, in the narrative, who is right at that point of being, if he knew, being able to evaluate life and say, what was my priority? It's 24 hours have spiraled out of control. He goes to the palace. Now, isn't it interesting? Here we have Haman, who just literally minutes earlier has been confronted by his advisors and his friends, and they have said, you have got no chance standing against Mordecai because you're standing against the God of Mordecai. He's whisked off to the palace and look at how he behaves. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your, your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. I want you to picture the scene. Queen Esther has invited two men to her banquet. Just the two. He thinks he's on top of the world. He's had this massive warning because Mordecai has suddenly become from a nothing to the one that he now realizes he's confronting the God. And yet the way he behaves is to pretend, to think, to imagine that he can carry on with life as it is. He goes to the the banquet uh, and the way he behaves is to just enter into that whole process of banqueting with the king and the queen. We see there that he's drinking with them. I'm guessing that this wasn't just um, uh, an aperitif before dinner, darling. We've already read as the stories have gone on how the whole of the drinking culture 
of uh, the Medo-Persian um, palace was probably not dissimilar to our drinking culture at times in our own uh, world today. The, they were going for it. We read that earlier in the chapter, and I guess that precisely the same thing was how Haman entered into this evening experience. He entered into it, and he was just wanting all of those questions, all of those challenges, all of those things that he has to ask himself just to go away and to imagine that he could be here as though nothing had happened, just get back to normal life. Isn't that tragic? It probably didn't seem tragic to Haman at the time, but isn't it tragic as we read the story, as we know how it unfolded, when we realize that Haman ignored all of those warnings, went to the palace and just pretended that he could immerse himself in just another evening. And yet the reality is that he is now very close to the end. It's so close. And yet the way that he is living is imagining and pretending and thinking that everything is fine in life. That he can carry on just the way it is. What do you want? Queen Esther. It's fascinating the way Esther responds. Her response is... I don't know whether Haman understood at this point yet. If we've been following the story, one of the things that we know is that Mordecai told Esther not to release to common knowledge her heritage. I don't know whether Haman knew at this point the connection between Mordecai and Esther and was beginning to piece together. I'm guessing that this was probably a massive surprise to him. Because at this point, Queen Esther as far as he was concerned, was just the queen of the king. He did not realize her connection, I'm guessing, to the whole of the backdrop of his story with Mordecai. What do you want, the king says to Esther? Half the kingdom can be yours. If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. Grant me my life. That must have... I wonder what the king thought. Who's threatening your life? Who can possibly threaten your life? Why should I be in a position to grant you your life? Who could possibly be threatening the life of the queen? And spare my people. This is my request. For I... See the way she puts herself in that community of people. She says, I belong to this group of people who are threatened. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we had been merely sold as male and female slaves, I would would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. It's just a great answer the way she says it, isn't it? You know, the reality is our lives are threatened. If we were just going to be slaves, you know, that wouldn't be so big as to worry the king. But of course it would be. She's responding in such a way to emphasize how desperate their situation. The king would, what would your response be as the king? 
Even if they'd have threatened you with slavery, of course that would have been something that I would have intervened on. Of course I would. Because to intervene with, uh, in the case of you being put into slavery would be absolutely my response. And you're saying it's not a big deal if we'd have been put into slavery. Of course it is. So in other words, it's an even bigger deal if you're being threatened with death. Who dares to threaten my queen and my queen's people with death? Who dares? Just for a moment, stop. Recline in your couch and imagine yourself in Mordecai's sandals. Sorry, (laughs) Haman's sandals, Mordecai isn't there. Imagine what it must have been like in Haman's sandals at that moment in time. When that response comes from Queen Esther, when suddenly the whole of his scheme to murder Mordecai, don't forget, he'd arrived that morning expecting within minutes for Mordecai to be impaled on the pole that he had set up. And now he is sat with the queen and the king and the queen is opening her mouth and is saying, I'm with them. And this man is threatening me. Talk about the world dropping out. Everything falls apart. You know, at that moment in time for Mordecai, did the size of his mansion matter? Did the number of servants that he owned matter? At that moment in time, he knows that he is being accused and he is being judged and he knows he is guilty. He knows with the words of Queen Esther that he is the one. I reckon that, you know, have you ever had one of those moments in time? I remember when I was very young, I crashed a car. And it was a horrible experience. But it was one of those experiences when within a few moments, all sorts of things, all sorts of ideas and whiz through your head. In split second, all sorts going through your mind. I reckon for Mordecai, at this moment in time, all sorts of things went through his mind. The things that his wife and his servants have said, the things that he'd planned to do with with Mordecai, the fact that he'd led Mordecai through the streets that day, all of those things just whizzing through his mind at one moment in time. Just The king gets up in a rage and leaves his drink, walks out into the garden. He knows the game is up, does Haman. He knows he's had it. He goes and he tries to plead with Queen Esther. And the king comes in. He's kind of, obviously the queen is, by the way the narrative describes it, she's reclining on a couch. And he goes over and he kind of must have been imploring her, leaning on the couch, getting very close to her. The king comes back in and he accuses her now, him now of molesting the queen, even while I'm just in the garden. Why does the narrator tell us that? It seems as though what the narrator is trying to help us to see 
is that from absolutely everything going right for Haman before, he's now in a position where absolutely everything is going wrong. He's being fairly accused, and now he's being misunderstood. He's not trying to molest the queen, but it's as though you can't get further away from his previous experience. That's the way it now is. I I reckon that our response, as we see the way the story unfolds, being um, generally of kind of Western cultural thinking, I guess most of us, will listen to this story and hear that Mordecai uh, Haman is immediately taken out and is impaled on the pole that he'd set up for Mordecai. I reckon most of us would have some sort of sensitivity and would say, I actually feel a little bit uncomfortable with that. I can understand that. I'll say two things to that. The first thing is this. That is very, very, very much shaped by our culture. If you were in a different culture, in a different part of the world, there would be many, many cultures down through history and around the world today which would say it is absolutely right that judgment is meted out fairly. That's fair. He was, after all, the man who had planned to kill the queen and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. That was the absolute edict that had been signed by Haman. Uh, And we might... Uh, say, well, now hang on a sec, that seems a bit extreme. We've got to question whether our cultural kind of approach to that is necessarily right. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is that this narrative is written for us to ask big questions about our lives. Big questions that would make us think, well, what about where we are? Because one of the things that this story tells us is that within a very, very short space of time, it can all change massively. Like that, it's changed. You've seen, I guess, some of you will have seen the the bracelets that you can get with, which says um, WWJD. What would Jesus do? Uh, I think there's also... Um, WWJS, I think I've seen that. What would Jesus say? Here's a question. What, what do you think Jesus would say to Mordecai? What do you think Jesus might have said to Mordecai just as the eunuchs had arrived at his house to take him away to the banquet? What do you think Jesus would have spoken to him, and therefore, what would that imply for us? I think there is something absolutely that Jesus would have said, and it's this. Luke chapter 12, 57 to 59 says this. 58, sorry. Are you go, as you are going with your adversary to the magistrate... Try hard to be reconciled on the way. Or your adversary may drag you off to the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. I think that's what Jesus might have said to Haman. Do you realize 
Haman, that you are now heading towards your judge. And right at this point in time, your very, very, very best move would be to speak to your adversary, to try to reconcile the situation, to try to get it right, because there's every possibility that if you go to your judge without it being resolved, you might end up in prison and you might never get out. I think that's what he might have said. He might have said, Haman, now is the opportunity to do something, to resolve the issue, to get it right, to understand, Haman, as your wife and your advisors had said, you are standing against the God of the Jews, and you'll never win. (laughs) So sort it, resolve it. But Haman's decision, having gone through the day that he had gone through, having decided in the morning that Mordecai was going to be killed, by the end of the day, was trying to brush all of that under the carpet and was drinking with the king and hoping that somehow in the future he could work it out and make it go away and resolve the situation inevitably by Mordecai's death. In other words, he had lived out those last few hours of his life in an absolute determination to say, I will continue to pursue my course of action. I am determined that Mordecai is going to die. I am determined that the Jews are going to have their comeuppance and they'll all be wiped out. My plan is in place. He did not, to use a Bible word, he did not repent. He did not stop. He did not say, I'm going to to stop this. You know, I have now been given enough flags, enough warnings. It's as though... The whole of the story is constructed for us to see these continuous warnings that, that Haman is given, continuously given, so that he might say, I need to stop, I need to stop this, I need to listen, I need to change course, I need to realize that uh, it's true, you know, everything that I do, it seems as though everything that I decide to do, I, I, I come up against the brick wall. Everything gets turned around for my disadvantage. I go in expecting to have Mordecai killed and I end up parading Mordecai through the streets. I've got to stop this. You know, there are moments in life where we've just got to take drastic, immediate action. And Haman did not take drastic, immediate action. He didn't do that. He was determined to continue in his course. What could he have done? What should he have done? Maybe what he should have done was immediately gone into the king and told him the whole story and said, this is the problem that I face. And I've done this and I've done that and I've planned this and I've planned Mordecai's death and I've planned, oh, Queen Esther's a Jew? Well, I'll be honest with you, therefore, I've also planned her death as well. Why could he have never done that? Why did he end up in this kind of between a rock and a hard place? Why did he end up there? Because he knew, he absolutely knew that King Xerxes would never have granted him grace. King Xerxes would never have been merciful. He'd taken it so far 
And now he was on this treadmill that he could not press the stop button on anymore. He couldn't do it. Why did Jesus therefore say, speak to your adversary? Because if you face the judge, without it resolved, you're in trouble. What is Jesus talking about when he describes that? And why does this fit into this whole story of, king Haman, of Haman and the king? Because Jesus is saying, you, you do realize that when we live our lives as Haman is the example for us in that self-centered determination. Haman, this great big portrayal, it's as though you and I are living our lives continuously, daily, opposed to God. We are in revolt against God. We are rebels. We are doing all to stand against Him. We might not be doing it by pursuing the death of thousands upon thousands of his people, but we are doing it by pursuing a life where we are at the center. Now, the difference between the two thrones is this. One throne, King Xerxes, if you went to that throne, you would never be granted mercy. But the throne that Jesus sits on, who is, after all, the judge who one day we will stand before, is the kind of throne where when you approach, the reality is you can pour it all out. Imagine if Haman had been able to go to that throne and say, the truth is, I've sought the death of a huge number of people in your kingdom including the person who saved your life, including your own wife. Imagine if Haman could have gone to that throne and the king had said, I forgive you. Imagine if that was possible. Imagine if Haman had known that that was the character of the king, the kind of king that could say, I can deal with this. I can resolve this problem. You know, in one sense, one of the backstories to the whole of this Esther narrative is this. There are two thrones. There's the throne of King Xerxes and there's the throne of the living God. And Haman at this point points us, I think, forward to Jesus who said you better make sure that when you are however far away from the reality of that judgment, you need to make sure that you re you've resolved it. Now, the great thing is, the in fact, the only way that you can truly resolve it is not by hiding anything like Haman did, but actually by letting it all pour out. Just let it all go. Let every little issue of life, every little rebellion, every little opposition to the God who made us, just be out there. Because the great thing about the throne of Jesus is that it can absorb all of that rebellion. Because standing on that throne, according to Revelation, is a lamb that was slain. Why does the Bible describe Jesus in that way? Because it it's wanting to tell us the reality is that the Jesus who will be judge 
is also the Jesus who has been the one who is sacrificed. He is the one who was born the guilt and the judgment for just that kind of rebellion. That is the most astounding news. It's the reason why in the first century, those who started to write about Jesus described it as gospel, good news. That's all that gospel means. It's good news. It's the kind of news that means (laughs) that actually, rather than the kind of Morgan Freeman bucket list life, We need to switch the way we think about our lives. Not about how much can I crush into this life to make it worthwhile, but rather, how much can I understand that my life is about that process of being taken before the judge? In other words, those few verses that Jesus spoke, the idea that we are being taken to the judge, that is our life. Our life is about that. And therefore, our life is the opportunity to be reconciled with the God who has made us. Because your reality and my reality is, just like Haman's, we do not know when that moment will come. So the sad thing about those bucket list ideas is that it tries to convince us that this is everything. The message of the gospel is, this isn't everything. But during this journey, you can go to a throne that is filled with grace and mercy and forgiveness, not because God washes it under the carpet, disappears as though it's never happened, somehow magics your rebellion away, but rather because God has dealt with yours and my rebellion in his own son. That is the most amazing news, I think. It's at the very core of the message of the Bible. And in a sense, this narrative, chapter 7, is all about being ready. (laughs) In a sense, Jesus becomes the one who is impaled on a pole. He's the one who becomes the guilty one. He's the one who becomes the one who is judged and found guilty. And in accepting him, we become the ones who are liberated and free.